Coming up, the Yankees have slightly cooled off after putting up a baker's dozen worth of victories, but the big question remains, do you trust this core come October? And do I really have to get into the Mets as they had another week to forget, topped off by what happened yesterday with their trade deadline acquisition in a one Javier Baez? Plus an update on the latest with the pennant races throughout the sport. The NFL season is now 10 days away as we get to wrap up training camp with some of the latest news and notes, including the NFL over-under win totals for the year, the Lakers reload yet again, bringing back another member of their 2020 title team, tennis begins its final major of the year, and its biggest player, Novak Djokovic, is going for immortality, Jake Paul wins again, am I really going to have to pay attention to this guy? The sun is starting to set on the month of August, as summer isn't far behind, but the sports world never fails to shine bright. I'll have all this and lots more, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the Jay Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com. For more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc., I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits as we're just about ready to scratch another month off the calendar and say goodbye to August. As September is going to be ushered in in just a couple of days. And in a matter of moments, I'll usher in all that's happening in the sports universe from my perspective, whether you're a diehard or casual sports fan, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 211 episodes, I welcome you guys back. 
It is a Monday, August the 30th, the final one of the month in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. The association has been low-key as expected, but I'll mention a couple of re-signings from a key player on the Knicks, another go-round for Rajon Rondo with the Lakers, and actually I have a new nickname for the team as a whole that you won't want to miss. The champion Bucks extend their coach, and KG, Kevin Garnett's jersey retirement is set in Boston, but is he really worthy of it? I'll get into that later on, as well as the college football season has begun. To me, the real season begins this coming weekend. Although you did have a few games this past weekend, including Nebraska losing at Illinois. But I'll get into the opening week schedule and will there be any surprises over the course of the next 12 weeks in the sport? Am I really going to have to keep an eye on this kid, Jake Paul? The YouTuber by day and boxer by night as he wins another match, this time against former MMA fighter Tyron Woodley. Is he going to be a guy that resuscitates a sport that is pretty much on its way out? I'll get into that later on, as well as the final major in tennis has begun today out in Flushing Meadow, where the biggest, and let's face it, only storyline is whether Novak Djokovic's quest for immortality will be achieved. I'll preview the U.S. Open as the podcast moves along. The preseason is complete in the NFL, so we can now set our sights on the upcoming season as it'll commence down in Tampa next Thursday night, as the Cowboys will invade to start off another NFL season, unbelievable. It feels like five minutes ago that Tampa just won the Super Bowl over the Kansas City Chiefs. I'll review the over-under win totals for the season and share the latest and greatest of what's happening throughout the league. I got a lot cooking on the sports stove and plenty to serve over the course of the next hour plus, including my hero and zero of the week. But we're going to start off talking about polar opposites. Especially when it comes to sports where a team that may have been floundering throughout the course of the year and you just wait for them to get on that streak, whether it be that 7, 8, 9, 10 double digits where it seems like they're never going to lose and they're flying high, they get themselves back in the middle of a race, maybe even a shot to win a division, those type of streaks that just seem to be inevitable and not only that but also to a certain extent never ending. But with the flip side being a team that has maybe been steady, if not spectacular, throughout the course of a year, and then all of a sudden it just bottoms out to the point where the streaks just continue to build and the lack of confidence, especially when it comes to a fan base, just permeates throughout the city and the ballpark in which his team plays at. And we're going to begin talking about, yes, both the Yankees and the Mets successively. And I'll start off with the Yankees because... Up until Saturday night, they have been the hottest team in the sport, and you could argue that they still are, despite the fact that the team in their own division that they're looking up at, the Tampa Bay Rays, has a seven-game winning streak, and throughout the course of this former 13-game winning streak that the Yankees had just completed, they had lost two games in the standings to where they're six back of the Rays in first place. But with this 13-game streak that has come and gone, where we've seen Giancarlo Stanton go on one of his rampages, A guy that, as we've seen before in the past, could just put a team on its back. Although a little bit too streaky for the Yankee fan. But we see how much he's performed throughout the course of this stretch. On top of what Aaron Judge has done. On top of the contributions that Luke Voigt has made. As I talked about last week, flexing his muscles and showing how much he deserves to play. Even with Anthony Rizzo and his left-handed bat brought to the Bronx. His experience, championship experience at that. Which is going to be much needed on this team and I'm going to get to in a minute. 
And then, of course, you have the pitching staff, which to me is the biggest question mark, led by Garrett Cole, who has pitched very well coming back from his stint on the COVID-19 protocol list. And then you have the bullpen, which scares you half to death. And when you combine all that, they still won 13 straight games. Yes, they did lose the back two in Oakland, especially after a game there on Thursday night where they jumped out to a 6-0 lead. They gave it all back, and then they got a run late and were able to secure a victory. And that's when you thought, are the Yankees ever going to lose a game from here to the end of September? Because they were winning games big. They were winning games small. They were winning games tight. They were winning games in blowouts. And it just looked like the Yankees, who just on the 4th of July were one game over 500, and since then, they've been a juggernaut. I believe their record from that date, off the top of my head, is 33 and 14. And when you have that type of streak in you or that type of run, you know that you're going to not only be a part of the mix, which they are in the wild card, but could be that threat not only to the rest of the American League, but to all of baseball as being a possible World Series champion. And for those who wanted to throw dirt on the Yankees, for those who wanted to put them out to pasture and thought that around the 4th of July, and yours truly, although I did come out and said at that time, right after the All-Star break, that the Yankees should start to sell off a few pieces. Not to say they had to break the team up altogether, but in order for them to maybe bring a young stud back, starting pitcher that is, or even a lefty bat in which they desperately needed, and as we saw later on that month of July when bringing in guys like Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo. But I thought that even if they were to trade off a guy like, dare I say, Gleyber Torres, who will be back on the team at some point this week, you would think against Anaheim, where they are now before they come home this weekend. Or I even mentioned Aaron Judge, a guy that has been healthy all year and we know the type of force he is offensively and an above average right fielder. But at the age of 29, going on his year 30 come next season, you got to wonder whether or not this could be the time to sell him off. You'll get a ton of return. You won't have to worry about having to fork over $250 million for the eight or nine or 10 year period that you're going to have to pay him. And in the back of your mind, wonder whether he falls, slips, slides, or swings at a pitch where he pulls a muscle that he's going to be on the IL for about three months. But ever since that time, right after the All-Star break, and pretty much even right up until the deadline when the team started to get hot, after that series in Boston when they lost three out of four, they have not been able to lose a series since. Now, mind you, they just evened out this series against Oakland because they did split. But when you click out these series wins and come across with a 13-game winning streak, all is going to look rosy. All is going to be high and mighty in the Bronx as they look forward to this final month of the season and get themselves ready for October. But that is the big question right now. And I don't have the crystal ball. And October is still five weeks away. But you do have to wonder, if you're a Yankee fan, when you look at this iteration Of the Bombers. Do you 100% trust this core. To deliver a championship. To your building. As the final team standing. In late October. And if you ask me right this very second. Despite their prowess offensively. Their power. Their punch. 
and everything that has transpired here over the last two and a half weeks, I'd have to say no. Can you trust Aaron Judge in a big spot? Can you trust Giancarlo Stanton? And mind you, in the wild card game last year, or in the wild card series against Cleveland, and then of course against Tampa, he did perform in record numbers with the five straight games with home runs and six in the postseason and just a smattering of games. But in that big spot where you know it's four to three, bottom of the eighth, runners on first and second, nobody outs, can he deliver? Can you look at a guy like Gleyber Torres as a guy that could come through in the clutch? Gary Sanchez, this Yankee core. And yes, we cannot throw out Anthony Rizzo and even Joey Gallo for that matter. And Gallo has not seen the likes of October at all in his career. So you got to wonder if he's going to be squeezing the bat a little extra tight come the division series or even the wild card as it looks right now for the Bronx Bombers. And not only that, that's just the lineup. I'm not even talking about their pitching staff where other than Garrett Cole, are you really going to put 100% stock and faith in a one Jordan Montgomery or Jamison Tyon or even in the bullpen where Aroldis Chapman, who started off unhittable, didn't give up a run until the middle of May. And since then, he pretty much can't even find the plate. Guys like Chad Green, who, yes, in middle relief, two and two-thirds, seems to deliver. But when the money is on the line, let's say seven, eighth inning, can he go ahead and get the big outs in October when needed? Young guys, whether your name is Nestor Cortez, Jonathan Loizaga, go on down the list. Do you really think that they're going to have visions dancing in your head of Jeff Nelson? Ramiro Mendoza, Mike Stanton, forget about Mariano. It's still a ways to go until we get to the wild card game, which it could be against the Boston Red Sox. And think about this, people. The Yankees could face both division opponents in their first two series, if you want to call it that. Obviously, they would need to beat the Red Sox in a one-game playoff. And then play the Rays for five games. And as we all know, the Rays do not fear the Yankees one bit. As we've seen here over the last couple of years. And for the Yankees, it's all about October. They could start a new winning streak tonight in Anaheim and win 30 games in a row. Leading up until the postseason. But you have to win those 11 or 12 games in order for it to stick. In order for the regular season to be legit. And we all know... Winning division championships, even winning wildcard games or getting past the division series does not get the Yankee fans all crazy. They're not going to break out the pinstripe pom-poms and go nuts until either they win an AL pennant or a World Series, which they have not won in almost 12 years. So when you add it all together and you pretty much take the 30,000 Foot aerial view of this Yankee team as of right now. Yes, do you feel good about your team? I'm sure you do. Do you feel confident about your team right now in the regular season? I'm sure you'd say yes. And there isn't going to be any reinforcements that are going to come along in the next 24 hours because there's not a waiver deadline deal which expires at the end of tomorrow night. This team right now is your team. And it's going to get to October. They're going to be a wild card team at best. They could win a division. 
They're six games behind. Chances are Tampa, they're not going to roll over. It's just a matter of whether you're going to host that game or go on the road to either Boston or Oakland and play that one game playoff. But when you get to that point, and we'll bring it up then. That's why I talk about it now. But you do have to ask yourself. Not only do you A, believe in this team. But do you believe they can deliver when it really counts? When it really matters? That's what the Yankee fan has to ask themselves today. Because yes, all may be fine and good as you cruise into the postseason. But getting to the playoffs... As much as it is an achievement, it's not the end-all, be-all for the Yankees. It's all about raising that trophy, capturing that last out in a World Series. And if you ask me right this second, I can't be confident. I can't believe. I don't think they'll deliver. Can they? Of course. Why not? They have the talent. They're surely capable. And we understand one of these years, they're finally going to break through, and you would think, win a championship but based on everything I just said right now unless in the flick of a switch or some of these guys that are unheralded whether off the bench in the bullpen or starting rotation stands up and delivers I can't see it happening now to the other side of town and I hate to bring this team up again. I really do. Only because I've talked about them so much over the last few weeks. And people are probably sick and tired of Jay Reels. The Mets are dead. They're not going anywhere. They imploded weeks ago in Philadelphia when they got swept. And then obviously playing against the Dodgers and Giants for 13 games to where they were 2-11. and 11. And to think, when they got swept in Philadelphia and we looked at that 13-game stretch, check the receipts. I said if the Mets are 5-8 and eight during that, 13-game span, which would be an atrocity. You would almost have to expect that considering how they played and how the Dodgers and Giants are miles ahead of the Mets and to think they were 2-11. Bookended by the sweeps at City Field from the Dodgers and Giants and in between losing not only three or four in LA, but two or three in San Francisco. And just look at this past week, because if you're a Met fan, all you got to do is just look at what happened there, especially on Wednesday night. And I'll detail this as quick as possible. When you think back to the World Series last year in game six between the Rays and Dodgers, and you see how Blake Snell was dealing against that Dodger lineup. And I forgot who it was. I believe the nine hitter came up and hit a routine C&I double down the third base line to where Snell was going to face the top of the order and then Cash came out to get him because it was going to be the third time around the lineup and pulled him for a reliever because it was time and that's what the analytics said that once you get past those first two trips around the order that the third is going to be very unkind to your starting pitcher. Mind you, Blake Snell to that point gave up two hits, struck out nine and the three batters that he was about to face and won Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, and Justin Turner were combined 0 for 6, and I believe 3 strikeouts. So all that went out the window because of the stupid analytics. Well, although the stakes weren't as high as they were last October, but with Mets starter Taiwan Walker dealing 
to where he gave up one run and one hit, and that was to Chris Bryant, a solo shot earlier in the game. And now he's in the seventh inning with a 2-1 lead. And ironically enough, the batter off the top of my head, I can't remember for the Giants, hits a meat ground ball, 38 hopper, over to third base to where Jonathan VR boots it. All right, run on first. And then the next batter was a pinch hitter, hits a pop-up that was in shallow right where Michael Conforto had to sprint and stretch on an all-out dive as an attempt to try to catch the ball. It didn't. Landed in the Bermuda Triangle. So now you had first and second, nobody out. So with the tying run on second, the go-ahead run on first, nobody out, top seven. Walker's thrown 74 pitches. Out comes Luis Rojas from the dugout. Time to pull your pitcher and bring in the relief. Aaron Loop, the left-hander, to face the left-handed bat of Brandon Crawford, who's having an MVP-type season. And to the dismay of the starting pitcher, arms up, walks off the mound, and is exasperated, to say the least, throwing his glove in the dugout. Can't believe what just happened. And then what does Loop do? And mind you, Loop has had a phenomenal year. ERA in the mid-ones. He's been getting big outs all year. First pitch to Crawford, double into the right field corner, two-run score, 3-2, and the Mets end up losing the game. And the problem that I have with this, and it's not so much Rojas' fault, it's just baseball in 2021. Because as Todd Zeal, the post-game analysis that he had on the SNY post-game show, how he came out and said, baseball is more about the iPad as opposed to the eye test. And he is 1,000% right. Because instead of having a feel, instead of having a gut feeling, knowing that both of those balls weren't hit hard and his pitcher had only thrown 74 to that point, let him get out of that mess. You want to see what he's made of there. You know what? If he gives up the double to Brandon Crawford and two runs score, fine. You could take him out of the game at that point. But keep him in the game not only to show you how tough he is and for him to get out of that jam... But also, he still had some room to wriggle with when it comes to his pitches. It's not as if he was at 103 pitches where he could say, you know what, he's getting tired, I'm going to take him out. And even then, you would still have to question it because of the way the balls were hit. So now we have a scenario where, in the postgame, Rojas, he comes out and says that his mind was already made up. He knew that he was giving him two batters. And even if those balls were hit off the wall... Or if there were 20-foot singles, that Walker was going to come out of the game. And we saw that. We saw what happened. And sadly, that's baseball in 2021. And then let's just fast forward to the events of what happened there yesterday. Now, the Mets had a losing streak of their own, losing four in a row, including the Friday night game against Washington, to where Saturday night, Jerry Kuzman night, as they retired his number, and I'll get to that in a minute. They end up winning that game. They go away yesterday winning 9-4 to and pretty much what we've seen here over the last couple of days where a few of the Met players, in particular Javier Baez and Francisco Lindor have had this thumbs down approach to when they get on base or whether they cross home plate and it made you wonder as a Met fan, were they going back to the 2017 Yankees to where that guy in the stands at City Field where the Yankees had to play three games against the Tampa Bay Rays where he had his thumbs down to not really celebrate, to make it ho-hum. And for a minute there, it made you wonder whether or not what kind of message was being sent by these Met players. 
So in the postgame yesterday, after a 9-4 victory, Javier Baez was asked, we noticed that you guys are celebrating with the thumbs down and you hit a long home run there in the game yesterday to actually take the lead 3-2. to And he pretty much admitted and said that, yes, we're doing that because I don't like to get booed. We're trying hard. I play for the fans. But if you're going to react like that, now I'm going to react like this as to show my displeasure for the fans by putting the thumbs down. I'm not going to give him a pass, people. You know that. But the one thing that should have been conveyed to him, especially by maybe some of the elder statesmen in the room, maybe if you're Jacob deGrom, and we understand he's not really part of the team because he hasn't pitched in almost two months, but you figured a guy maybe would step up, a Jeru's Familia in particular, someone who could speak similar language and maybe convey it a lot better than some of the other players on his team. Because remember, a lot of these guys on the team, especially the leaders or the guys that you would look at leaders, whether your name is Pete Alonso, even Michael Conforto, because he's been here for quite a long time, you figured they would have pulled Baez aside to say, listen, we understand what you're trying to do, but that's not going to work here. Because these fans, they're desperate for a winner. We're in first place all year. You just got here 15 minutes ago. So you don't really get the scope of why the Met fan is reacting in this fashion. So instead, he does a thumbs down. And even Francisco Lindor has been doing it as well. Which you think he being here at least for a few months longer than Baez could convey to him and say, listen, man, these fans are tough. We just got to go and perform. We got to block that out. Let's just go ahead and just try to win these games and we'll get them back on our side in no time. So Baez admits that. And the one thing I'm going to say about Baez, and I was all for the trade a few weeks ago to bring him in because we didn't know whether or not Lindor was going to come back and he came back sooner than later. But for Baez to come out in that way with the thumbs down, he's certainly not going to endear himself to the New York fan by behaving that way. And I could already see tomorrow where the Mets have to play a home series against the Marlins, what kind of response is he going to get from the crowd at his first plate appearance? And I'm sure it's not going to be pleasant, to say the least. And therefore, it's just going to mount, and it's going to continue to just fester as time goes on, especially when this team is at home. And even worse, as this team's chances of making it to the postseason are slowly slipping away. Me? They're already gone. They're not even making the playoffs. You can forget about that. But... Mathematically, they are still alive. So as long as they have these quote-unquote meaningful games in September, it's only going to hurt Javi. If he continues to do this, more it's going to help him. And with Baez, as I said back then, I'll say it now, we could say he's a feast or famine player. I like to call him more of a trick-or-treat type of player. Because in his game, there are a lot of treats. Yes, he does have power, as we saw yesterday. His base running, although he had a blunder there the other night, But as we all know, magnificent. His glove at second or short, as we've seen, and we saw that there the other night when he made the tag, phenomenal. But then the tricks are the free swinging, that one pitch, I don't know if you saw it on social media, where I forgot who the pitcher was on the Nationals threw an off-speed pitch, and literally, Baez swung at that pitch yesterday. That's how early he was on that swing. I mean, when you watch it from the third base camera angle, it's almost as if he... Picked up a bat for the first time in his life and swung. So you know you have to live with his plate discipline or lack thereof. And then number two, to compound that, we have this issue here with the thumbs down where you would think 
Hopefully, if he's going to come out with an apology, who knows? Maybe during the pregame tomorrow, and they have a split double header tomorrow, a 1 p.m. and then a 7 p.m. Who knows if he's going to say anything to the press? You would think if he wants to make amends, he would say, listen, guys, I'm sorry. I should have known better, whatever. And who knows? For most New York fans, they'll probably look at that and still boo at him. Me, there is no... And you could do what you want. If you're in the ballpark, you paid your money, whatever. Me, I don't boo players. I could be frustrated with players. I could be angry at players. But I'm never going to boo. Because it's counterproductive. If you're the type that wants to boo your players, so if you want to yell, scream, or boo at Francisco Lindor or Javier Baez, or Jeru's Familia, or whomever else you don't like on the team, that is your right. Fine. But at the end of the day, what does that do, or what does it prove? Nothing. And even though Baez made an interesting point, how the more you boo, it doesn't help us, it hurts us, and yeah, that does make sense, and it is true, but you know what? The fans are going to do what they're going to do. And they just have to suck it up. Because anytime you get into that battle with the fans... That is a losing one, to say the least. And one other thing with Baez, he's a guy that, streaky player, can hit long home runs, has the power, but in this lineup, with the way it's constructed right now, and the only guy that's really hitting has been Pete Alonso, but it's unfortunate because a lot is going to be expected of Baez over the next month, and he's not that type of offensive player. Yes, he does fit in a lineup where you have guys like Anthony Rizzo, Kyle Schwarber, Chris Bryant, Ben Zobrist of years past. And not that Zobrist was this offensive juggernaut, but he is more of a complimentary offensive player and would fit more in a lineup like that than he would as being one of the top two or three people in a lineup where you're going to see all of his warts and they will not be hiding at any stretch when it comes to a big point of the game. And mind you, he has had some big hits, although few and far between, but he has made his presence felt in some games when he's been in the lineup. Granted, his strikeouts go through the roof, and he's only batting, what, in the mid-200s at best? He's probably batting 230, 240. But Baez, not a good look here, and hopefully he makes amends. And then sadly, if you're a Met fan... When you look at the front office, this paints themselves in a corner because we all know Baez is a free agent after this year. And he's a guy that you would think to want to keep Francisco Lindor happy, they're going to have to re-up at some point. Or do they go to Lindor at the end of the season and say, sorry, we're not going to re-sign him because he's going to ask for this amount of money and I don't know who he's being represented by, but... That's going to be a whole other set of encyclopedias that they're going to have to deal with because they already have Lindor locked in for the next 10 years. And mind you, we'll throw this one in the garbage a la Carlos Beltran in his first year as a Met in 2005. And you only hope he comes anywhere close to what Carlos Beltran did from 2006 on as a member of the Mets. But right, is he going to mope? Is he going to sulk? Is he going to privately bitch and moan that if the Mets don't re-sign Baez, that it's like, oh, geez. So this is what I've come here for. So you got that to potentially deal with down the road. And then now let's get to this deal overall with the Mets on a whole. They're going to have to open the windows, break out the Windex, the Pine Sol, the Swiffer, you name it. The Easy Oven, Easy Off, whatever you want to call it, and clean house. 
That means Sandy Olsen, bye-bye. We don't understand why you were brought back to begin with. I get why because of, I'm sure you had a relationship with Steve Cohen when he had that minor percentage as far as his stake of the team goes, but bye-bye Sandy Olsen. We've seen enough of you. Good riddance. Zach Scott, we hardly knew you, so we're not going to miss you by any stretch, so we can say goodbye without having to bat an eyelash. And then on top of that, Louis Rojas is going to have to go with all of them as well. No offense, I like Rojas. He's a stand-up guy. He's faced the media. I've watched a lot of his post-game press conferences. And right, it becomes redundant after a while, but he hasn't shown any of that fake confidence or the hubris that this team has had pretty much throughout most of this year, being in first place for three months and then thinking that Delusion is set in where, hey, we are still a first place team, but we've just gone through a bad stretch. No, he's pretty much said it like it is, fine, but he's got to go too. That's all there is to it. And the only other thing I could think of right now, if you're Steve Cohen, is what are you going to do with this team come off season? Now, I'll get into a lot of that later on. I just wanted to bring that up now because the die has been cast. This team needs to be blown up. And if that means Bias doesn't get re-signed here, that's fine too. And Baez has to understand, one other thing on him, he has to understand that this is not Chicago where the bleacher bums in Wrigley Field just like to be out there drinking beers throughout the course of the day whether the Cubs win 5-4 or lose 15-0. Because here in the Northeast, and in particular the Met fan, they're passionate about their team. So this isn't St. Louis where they don't boo their players. This isn't Milwaukee where it's like, hey, you know, we're just here because we want to cheer our team on. No, this is a whole different beast in the Northeast. So that's one thing he's going to have to deal with. And if Lindor doesn't like it, he could go too. But we all know that's not going to happen because he's going to be locked in for $341 million, 10 years starting next year. And he's going to have to suck it up. That's all there is to it. I digress. Back to the organization. So they're going to have to blow it up. Where are they going to go for a manager, GM? We'll talk about that come the first week of October. But they're going to have to blow it up. That's it. And there are a lot of free agents on this team. We'll get into that then. And then lastly, and I promise I'll move on. Lastly, this scenario with Jerry Kuzman getting his number retired, and it has nothing to do with him. God bless him. I'm glad he has his day in the sun. It's been long overdue considering that the last time he pitched for the Mets was 43 years ago. So two-thirds, not only of the people who showed up the other night, but two-thirds of the fan base couldn't even tell you who Jerry Kuzman is. But they finally retire his number, but that's more of an indictment on the Wilpons because they could have done this many years ago. And on top of that, should have brought the Tom Seaver statue to City Field when it first opened in 2009. And I understand due to COVID, but we still don't have that statue that should have been long out there collecting dust, rust, whatever it is from all the elements of the seasons, etc. The Mets are a complete and unmitigated disaster. All right, what can I tell you? What more can I tell you? It's just a shame. And it's even hard to fathom that this team was in first place for three months. To the point where on July 28th, they were five games ahead of the Phillies and Braves. And now they're seven and a half back of the Braves. And you want to even go back to August 6th, the morning of, which was just 24 days ago. They were a half game ahead of the Phillies. And since then, they've lost seven and a half games in the standings. That's it. 
No more. On to the pennant races because I'm just getting sick at the second. Ugh. I'll stay in the National League where the Braves in the East who won two out of three against the Giants over the weekend. And the Braves right now, they're in prime position to win another division title because the Phillies can't get out of their own way. They had to struggle to win two games against the Diamondbacks over the weekend. And I understand, I believe they blew them out there on Saturday. But the Phillies, they've just been a season-long slumber and I don't expect them to snap out of it right away. And although they're five and a loss, four and a half back, but I think the Braves should pretty much cruise to a division. Now, granted, their schedule is a little bit tricky here with the Braves because they just finished a series with the Giants, and now they're going to the West Coast to play the Dodgers for three and four in Colorado. And you say, real, four in Colorado? They're the Rockies. But their home record is actually the second best in the National League. So who knows? Can they split four or even win three out of four? It's quite possible considering that the friendly confines of Coors Field has been that and then some. And although they do have some tricky series after that, they do have to go to San Francisco and also at San Diego, which they're flailing right now. But this is the toughest stretch for the Braves right now. So if there's going to be any movement by the Phillies and dare I say Mets, it has to be this week. And then the Phillies, they have an easy week coming up as they have to go to the nation's capital to play the Nats and then go to Miami for three before they go to Milwaukee for the start of Labor Day a week from today. So the Braves, like I said, in very good shape to win a division. The Central's pretty much locked with the Brewers having a nine-game edge in the loss column. But the Reds are playing very well. And when you look at the wild card standings, because the Giants, even though they have a three-game and a loss, two-and-a-half-game lead over the Dodgers. And you know they're going to go toe-to-toe to the end. The Padres right now are in a freefall. When we look at the Padres, this was the team that looked like they were going to threaten the Dodgers as early as a month ago for the top spot in the wild card. And as of right this second, when you wake up this morning, you can forget about the division. They're 15 games behind. 15! This is the Padres. Everybody thought they were going to be the darlings of Major League Baseball. But as I said, when you wake up this morning, although they're a game in the loss, but they're a game and a half back, but did you look at the Padres' schedule from now until the end of the year? It is not brutal. It is brutal. Here's the Padres' schedule for the rest of the year. All right, they go to Arizona for three. Big whoop. But then they have Houston coming to their building this weekend. A two-game set with the... Anaheim Angels, and then, get ready for this, three in LA, four in San Francisco, three in St. Louis, that's a 10-game road trip, and the Cardinals are trying to stay afloat in the wild card, then they host San Francisco, host Atlanta for four before ending their seasons in LA and San Francisco. Good luck with that if you're a Padre fan. So that's what you have there with the National League, and then as far as Cincinnati goes, being a game and a half up, and let's talk about the Cardinals. They're three and a half back, two in the loss, and when we look at their schedules, the Reds have, they just finished playing Miami, and they lost two out of three in Miami, by the way, but they host St. Louis in a huge series starting tonight, I believe. They'll have the Tigers come in this weekend, followed by the Cubs, Pirates, and Cardinals in between, all on the road. So that's pretty much your next week and a half there if you're the Reds. As for the Cardinals, they have three games in Milwaukee, followed by four at home with the Dodgers, 
followed by Cincinnati at home, and then they play at the Mets after that. So you're going to see a lot of Cincinnati and St. Louis here over the course of the next 10 days or so. We'll see how that shapes up as far as the Central goes. Well, pretty much with the wild card because the Brewers are well out in front. So that pretty much sums up your National League. And then in the American League, we talked a little bit before about the Rays. They are flying high. Winners of seven in a row and pretty much have a comfortable lead six games in the American League East. You have the Yankees two games ahead of the Red Sox for the wild card where the Red Sox have a two game and a loss lead over the A's two and a half back. Seattle is four and a half back. Toronto five and a half back. And that pretty much sums up your wild card. And then the divisions are pretty much going to be status quo because the White Sox are running away with the AL Central. And then the West, the Astros have a five and a half game lead, six and a loss. So the only division that you could pretty much look at right now is the NL West. I'm not going to say the NL East right now. I'm not even going to look at any of the other divisions other than the NL West because the Dodgers and Giants are toe-to-toe. And when we look at the Dodgers and Giants, we'll check real quick. The Giants will face the Dodgers this coming weekend for three, and I believe that's it for the remainder of the year. The Dodgers, as we know, being three games back, the rest of their schedule, and we'll look at that real quick. Dodgers' rest of the schedule, Atlanta, then San Francisco. They go to St. Louis for four, San Diego, Arizona, at Cincinnati, at Colorado, at Arizona, and then they end with San Diego, Milwaukee. That is a not an easy schedule. San Francisco, again, Atlanta, Milwaukee for four this coming weekend. No, I take that back. San Francisco has Milwaukee for four right now, followed by the Dodgers at Colorado, at the Cubs, San Diego for four, Atlanta, at San Diego, at Colorado, Arizona, San Diego. They have a much easier path to win a division than the Dodgers do. And that's baseball. It looks like September is going to be a snore when it comes to the division races. And pretty much you're going to have the wild card in both the AL and NL. That's all you're going to have. Maybe a little San Francisco, LA Dodgers, but it's not looking to shape up to be a pennant race to remember here unless one of these one of these teams fall back to the pack so much that another team, a la Phillies, Mets, maybe even the Yankees, depending if the Rays hit a tough stretch. It's pretty much going to be ho-hum until October. And that's going to sum up your baseball people. All right, let's get into some football as we're 10 days away from the start of the NFL season. Dallas at Tampa to raise the curtain on the 2021 campaign. And we'll get to see Tom Brady go start off another season where he's going to look for his eighth Super Bowl. Jeez. I mean, he's already played in 10 of them. Uh, We're just Brady fatigued out. I'm tired of it. Listen, do I want them to go 5-11? No, but... We need to have Tampa in the mix here throughout the course of the season. And you would think coming out of that division, you would have to believe they'll come out victorious and be a team that's going to host the playoff round. Because do you believe in the Saints with Jameis Winston? Do you think Atlanta is going to make any leaps and bounds? Carolina, 
probably some more growing pains with Sam Donald as their first-year quarterback. So Tampa should be fine, but when we look at the upcoming season, and especially with the over-under win totals, and we know that I've been terrible with these numbers, but I want to go through them now because next week I'll get into them and choose six teams. I may do three overs, three unders. Sometimes I like to mix it up. I do like to balance it out, though. I don't want it to be four and two. But if there's one or two teams that I absolutely like, and it happens to be an over or under, I will go that route. But if you're wondering who has the highest win total of this upcoming season, it is the Kansas City Chiefs at 12. Now remember, 17-game season. So even if the Chiefs are 13-4, and you're going to win. That's the one thing about the number being without a half after it. So if you're the Buccaneers, as they're the second highest win total team, in the NFL this year at 11 and a half. So you know that you have to clear 11 altogether. Whereas if you hit the Chiefs and they're 12 and 5. Obviously it's a push. You don't win anything. Packers are next at 11. Ravens after that at 11. Rams 10 and a half. Bills 10 and a half. Seahawks 10. Niners 10. And that's a little dicey if you ask me. Colts 10. Browns 10. So those are your teams that have double digit win totals for... This upcoming year. Then you follow that by Titans 9.5. I know the Steelers have a, there at 9. Which we'll get to. Saints 9.5. Cowboys 9.5. Steelers 9. Pats 9. Dolphins 9. Chargers 9. Then you have Vikings 8.5. Washington 8. Raiders 8. Cardinals 8. Broncos. Bears. Panthers at 7.5. Eagles. Giants. Falcons at 7. Bengals 6.5, Jets, Jaguars, Titans 6, and the Lions are the team with the lowest win total at 5. Now, do any of these stick out for me right now? The one that sticks out to me the most is the Niners. They have to go 11-6. and six. And with Garoppolo and he has an injury history, that may be a little too high. I'm not going to... Say I'm going to choose it outright because I'm going to pick them next week. But that's one that really sticks out as very high. I would see them more eight and a half because if they win nine, all right, fine. They're nine and eight. Ten, that's a little high if you ask me. Chargers nine, that could also be a pretty high number. And a lot is expected with that team considering second year Justin Herbert. And I believe they won, what, six last year? Maybe seven? So you figure maybe they'll leap to nine? Who knows? That's the thing. That extra game adds a lot to it because... And I hate the extra game. I don't know if you've listened to any of the past podcasts. To add that 17th game, I don't like it. It's just off kilter. No balance. I'd rather it be 18 games than 16. But we all know that that's not going to be the case, at least for right now. That's like having an 81-game NBA season or a 161-game baseball season. Round it out. 17? Ugh, I hate it on so many levels. But the Chargers, eh. Now, a team that I think could be surprising at a low number. Uh, It's tough to gauge right now. It really is. I mean, can the Jaguars get seven wins this year? Can they go seven and ten? Are the Falcons maybe a team that could go north of seven? I'm really going to 
regurgitate this over the course of the next week and really dissect what I could come up with as far as my over-unders for next week. But I think it's pretty fascinating. Because of that extra game, it does add that wrinkle where a lot of these teams may be a little bit higher than they should. But we'll get into that all next week or on next week's program. And of course, my NFL preview, which I will certainly break down all the divisions, surprise picks, my knockout pick. It'll be interesting to see if I had to take an early knockout pick. Let's see. This is scary because the last two years, I've been out week one. And that is just awful. In fact, last year, who did I pick? Yes, I picked the Colts week one to beat the Jaguars. And the Jaguars, what? They went on to lose 14 straight games after that. So yeah, that is my luck right there. To think that the Colts should have been a shoe-in to win that game. And that was not the case. All right, here we go. Let's see. Real quick. We got... Los Angeles at Washington. That's the Chargers. Jacksonville, Houston, Cleveland, Kansas City. I'm only going to go about the teams that I think that could be an obvious pick. San Francisco over Detroit. I'm sure a lot of people are going to pick San Francisco as far as that knockout pool. Yeah, it is a tough week. You're not going to pick the first game, Dallas-Tampa. Philly-Atlanta. Maybe you choose Atlanta there, but that's risky. You're going to stay away from Pittsburgh-Buffalo, although I think Buffalo is going to be, what, they're seven and a half point favorites in that game, so I'm sure a lot of people will pick Buffalo. And a lot of people are sleeping on Pittsburgh, by the way. I'm not saying Pittsburgh's going to the Super Bowl. I'm not saying they have a long, deep postseason run, but if their defense is above average, which is expected, now who knows with T.J. Watt, he hasn't performed all preseason. And Roethlisberger, new offense, he has some weapons. I'm not saying that they're going to go 11-6, and six, but a lot of people just... Throwing them under the bus. Which, all right, please, don't even pick us. I'd rather you not even look at us, let alone pick us. But, but Buffalo, I think, would win that game. Minnesota, Cincinnati, are you going to pick that? Huh? Seattle, Indy. You have slim pickings. Cleveland, Kansas City, Miami, New England. Maybe you want to p- pick New England there, but Miami could pull off an upset. You never know. In fact, Bill Belichick hasn't even decided who his starter is going to be. And Mac Jones has performed well here, especially in the game yesterday against the Giants in the final game of preseason. Denver Giants, Chicago, LA, Baltimore, LA, or excuse me, Baltimore, Las Vegas. You have some slim pickings there for week one for your knockout pool. So we will see how that uh, transpires. And I thank God I have a week to reflect on that. As far as the news and notes real quick. Starting quarterback in Jacksonville, no surprise, Trevor Lawrence. He did lose a big piece there in Travis Etienne, his former college teammate at Clemson, out for the season with Liz Frank injury. That's the foot injury at the very top there near your big toe. J.K. Dobbins, who is a very productive runner for the Ravens, tears his ACL in the last game. He's done for the season. You also have Teddy Bridgewater is going to start week one for Denver. No Drew Locke. Gardner Minshew gets traded to Philly. So they have a backup there in case if Jalen Hurts and that experiment goes awry. Speaking of players being acquired, the Rams with Cam Akers done for the year with the Achilles. They acquire Sony Michelle, the former Patriot running back, as well as the corner from Ohio State by way of the Baltimore Ravens, Sean Wade for two conditional picks. The Jets, another defensive, or actually two. Earlier, they lose Carl Lawson, as we talked about last week. They also lose Vinnie Curry to a blood disorder, a rare one at that. And then on top of that, 
had to trade for Shaq Lawson from the Houston Texans. No relations to Carl Lawson, who they signed from the Bengals. Now you have these COVID lists you have to worry about with the Cowboys. You had a few guys on the team had to be put on that list. We know about Ryan Tannehill and about nine Titans. Remember the Titans were a big part early on as far as teams contracting COVID. Well, here it goes again with the Titans. What the hell is going on down there in Nashville? Who knows? And then you had a few bills, including Cole Beasley, who's now off that list. But you had Gabriel Davis, the wide receiver, Star Latulale, the defensive lineman, and a few others had to be quarantined after close contact with, I believe, one of the trainers. So who knows what COVID is going to do to start off the season. And as I mentioned early on in the training camp session where a lot of these teams may have to forfeit games, which you know it's not going to happen for a minute there. I actually thought, uh, would the NFL even do that? There's no way because they have to give that money back to the networks for those games that aren't going to be broadcasted. And we all know I have a better chance of being a backup for the New York Jets than that happening. So you can forget about that. These games are going to be played by hook or by crook. And then Roger Goodell came out and said that, yes, we must keep the Bills in Buffalo, that the downtown scenario would not be fitting, but a new stadium can be erected, if not next to the current stadium in Orchard Park, but somewhere in the vicinity. So we'll wait to see what happens there. Could you imagine the Bills... After all the Super Bowls there in the 90s and then this gigantic lull in between of no playoffs and then now having a playoff team the last two years, making it to the AFC title game, Bills Mafia going crazy and it's like, okay, now we're going to move to who knows. (laughs) Talk about rude and crude, but that's not going to take place. A stadium will be built there in no time. And also Harrison Smith signed four for 64 million with the Minnesota Vikings making him the second highest paid safety in the league behind Jamal Adams. So I'm sure the Viking fan, my guy, Kev, and also head style out in Minnesota, I'm sure rejoicing there. Now let me segue to college football because we had the season begin over the weekend when Nebraska loses to Illinois. Lots of self-inflicted mistakes by the Cornhuskers, leading to a lot of scores by the fighting Illini, turnovers, penalties, mental errors. Seems like it's the same old movie from based on what I read I did not watch the game, but saw some highlights. And yes, it was a disaster there by the Cornhuskers losing to the Fighting Illini there the other day. But your college football schedule, and I'm going to start with the main matchups. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you have the first one being Thursday where Ohio State will be front and center going to Minnesota to play the Golden Gophers. Followed by, over the weekend, Oklahoma playing at Tulane. Alabama playing the University of Miami. That will be in Atlanta at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So it's not going to be down at the Hard Rock Stadium where the Hurricanes play their games. Miami, the football team, the pro football team, they're actually playing in New England. So they could have played that game there. But usually that opening game is a showcase game. So Alabama will play the Hurricanes down in Atlanta. You also have Georgia and Clemson, which is your highlight game. Your, I believe it's your ABC or it could be your CBS, considering SEC with Georgia, going to Clemson, playing in Carolina, to where two of the top five teams in the country, Clemson number three, Georgia number five, that's going to be an early test to see whether or not who's going to have a foothold as far as the top four and the college football playoff is concerned. 
And then Sunday night, you have Notre Dame, who are the ninth ranked team in the country, traveling to Florida State and Tallahassee to play the Seminoles. So Georgia and Clemson will go a long way, at least early on, for the college football playoff. And when we talk about the upcoming year, I mean, what can we say? It's going to be chalk, people. Even if Clemson or Georgia loses this one game, it's going to take two losses in order for them not to make it in the top four. Now, it could be tricky because if Georgia loses this game, and remember, they're going to have to go through the gauntlet of the SEC, whereas if Clemson loses, they have the ACC. And even though their strength of schedule isn't the same as Georgia, which will bode well for Georgia, but you never know if Clemson just steamrolls the rest of the opposition throughout the course of the year and therefore could be one of the last four teams standing, you know the fans down in Athens are just going to go bonkers, bananas, to wonder why that even with one loss and beating Clemson, them not making it to the college football playoff, it's going to speak volumes. Or by them going undefeated because let's say if they do run the table from there and even beat Alabama in an SEC title game, listen, they would have to make it to the Final Four. That's all there is to it. But strange things have happened. We've seen how this playoff format works. But we'll worry about that as we get into late November, early December. But I can't see this season being any different than the last several seasons. Okay, maybe Notre Dame doesn't make it to the top four. And when we look at the top five, it's again Alabama, Oklahoma, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia. It's any one of those teams. Pretty much take your pick. Until they expand the format to eight teams, this is the way it's going to be. It's the same song and dance. And sorry, not enough drama to make you wonder whether or not a team outside of the top four can make it besides Georgia. Or let's say if Notre Dame can move up in the ranks to maybe get one of those four spots, who knows? But to me, it's going to be the same old college football season. Bama's going to be there. You would think Oklahoma, you would think Ohio State. As I said, the Georgia-Clemson game is one to keep an eye on, especially for down the road. Other than that, what other team is going to Sneak up there. What, Florida's going to be that team? Texas, any of these other teams, Notre Dame, who knows? And then you have the Alliance, which I know was reported last week. I didn't really get into it. And I didn't really delve into the nuts and bolts of what this Alliance will mean. I understand it's going to be historic between the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12. We know the Big 12 is going to be kaput. And who knows? If they're going to be a part of a merge, not to say with the SEC, but maybe those teams as they section off, could K-State or Kansas or any of the other Oklahoma State, can they sneak in to be a part of this new formed alliance? Remains to be seen. I don't know what year that this alliance will take shape or when it will begin, but what that's going to do is make for more attractive matchups. It's going to put a lot of the emphasis on the cross, the interconference play, where these teams may face in the opening weeks, but now you may see them in the middle of the year. You may see a Michigan versus UCLA. You may have an Ohio State versus Oregon, which I do believe they play the following week, if I'm not mistaken. But you're going to see a lot more of those matchups as opposed to the once every blue moon. And that's a boon for college football, because for the college football fan and me, which is very small. And I followed the sport a lot more in the last 10, 12 years than I have even overall. 
But if you want to really gain the interest of the likes of myself to have those three conferences join forces and have these type of matchups over the years where it's going to make the college football season that much more intriguing, then I'm all for it. As it is, you're going to have Oklahoma and Texas part of the SEC in the year 2025. And granted, that's not going to happen anytime soon. We know it's going to be another four years, but still. And if that means to 2025, the same for this alliance to begin its conference play, then let's do it. We know the Power Five is gone. It's probably going to be the Power One and a Half, I guess, between the trio, ACC, Pac-12, and Big Ten with the SEC. So college football obviously is going to be front and center here starting off this upcoming week. And again, people, we'll get through some of these games. We know the NFL is going to be front and center. Obviously, whatever we get from the pennant races, especially once we get into October when we're going to talk playoff baseball. And as we know, college football has a lot of peaks and valleys, more so valleys than peaks. But it's on the radar, people. I'll be in tune. You know that. And we'll take it from there as far as how this all shakes down. We also have the situation with Jim Harbaugh. Who knows what's going to happen with Michigan. That's something that we'll have to keep our eye on. Whether or not, and I believe he did sign an extension last year. But is he going to be long for this Wolverine job if they go through another bad year and get blown up by Ohio State come late November? If you're a Wolverine fan, we thought that he was going to come in off the White horse and really do some damage there, not only with the Big Ten, but Michigan putting him back on the map, and he hasn't really done so, especially in the last few years. And if you want to look at some Heisman hopefuls, here's some names to keep an eye on. Sam Howell, the quarterback out of UNC. Spencer Rattler, great name there, quarterback out of Oklahoma. Brees Hall, the running back out of Iowa State. Bijan Robinson, another running back out of Texas. And then Bryce Young, a guy you have to look at, the quarterback out of Alabama, as well as the Clemson QB following up Trevor Lawrence and a one DJ Ugalile. And that's going to be your college football people. I'm going to transition here, now pivot to go to the NBA because we had a few things shake down there as far as extensions and signings and I have a new name for the Lakers here. So the Knicks re-upped with Julius Randle. They figured that Instead of adding on a gigantic contract to, let's say, becomes an all-NBA player, let's say third team, a second team. I don't know if he ended up being third team this year, although he could have warranted that. But a four-year, $127 million deal is on the table, which is very team-friendly and also gives Randall his security. You do not want to give a guy like that four years, $196 million. You have to have some flexibility, especially if you're trying to compete in this league, and especially in an Eastern Conference where you have Brooklyn, you have Milwaukee, you have Philadelphia. So that was a very fair extension for Julius Randle, and we already saw videos of him in the gym working, so good for him. As far as the Lakers go, we know that they're a bunch of mercenaries, and we've seen what has happened over the last few weeks, whether your name is Carmelo Anthony, whether your name is Dwight Howard, Trevor Ariza, Kent Bazemore, Malik Monk, I understand that's a much lesser scale, I get that, but still, they're bringing on all these players just for the one common goal, and that's to win another championship. Well, add Rajon Rondo to that list. He, of the 2020 title team, 
And remember, he got traded to Memphis, but then was bought out by the Grizzlies. So now he's going to sign, I'm sure, a league minimum with the Lakers. So you know what? I'm going to call the Lakers moving forward. Remember that movie about 10, 11 years ago called The Expendables? The action movie where you had all those movie actors from previous action movies, whether your name was Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dolph Lundgren, Jason Statham. Oh, you know who they are. I'm sure you've watched all those movies or seen them or at least have heard of them. Well, the Lakers are going to be the Expendables. And I understand these guys are under contract and whatever, but they're all mercenaries to come in here. And I get it. It's about winning championships, whatever. But geez, they might as well have me come off the bench. And I understand I will be of no contribution whatsoever except maybe hand out towels or cups of Gatorade. But geez. I tell you, it's a who's who list of players on the Lakers where you just have the studs in LeBron, AD, and Russell Westbrook, and then the supporting cast, which are the Expendables. You also have Laurie Markkinen, who a lot of people expected big things out of Chicago. He gets traded to the Cavaliers in a three-team deal with Portland and the Bulls. So he's going to team up with Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. If the guy could stay healthy, who knows? Maybe they could be a 30-win team as opposed to a 22-win team. I don't know. So that's what you have there with the marketing deal. So he leaves considering that the Bulls have had a makeover and a half where, of course, they had Zach Levine, but they bring in DeMar DeRozan. They bring in Lonzo Ball. Those are the big two guys that they brought in this offseason. And marketing a guy, ironically enough, no pun intended, being expendable in in his own right, gets shipped to Cleveland. So let's see what he does on his next stop in his NBA journey. Coach Budenholzer of the Bucks gets a three-year extension after him winning a championship just a month and a half ago. So congratulations to him. And one last thing on the NBA front. I love... And I said it with a capital L-O-V-E, Kevin Garnett. If you're a Celtic fan, how could you not? Change the culture of the team. Umbutu, the 07-08 team, 66-16. Yeah, they had to sweat out around one against the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, they had to sweat out around two against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, they had to sweat a little bit down 2-1 to the Pistons until they won the next three to make it to the NBA Finals. And yes, even down... What was it, 20 some odd points in a game four where the Lakers were primed to equal or even the series at 2-2, but the comeback led by Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, etc., and then they won the NBA title. For all the energy, ferocity, passion, everything that he brings, his number is going to be raised, number five, to the Rafters at the TD Garden on March 13th. And I have to say, as much as he was an integral part of that team, does he really deserve to get his number retired? I have to say no. And I love Garnett. I get that they had not won a championship in 22 years, from 86 to 2008. I get that he was one of the focal points of them winning a championship. He was there for six years. I understand that in 09, he went down with a knee injury and they could have went to the finals and maybe won another one then. And we know in 2010, they made it to the finals and they lost in a game seven to the Lakers. 
And then, yes, they got the break of all breaks with Derrick Rose tearing his knee in game one against Philadelphia to where they played them in the second round and then played the Miami Heat where they had a 3-2 series lead and could have gone to another NBA title but they or NBA championship, but they did not do so in losing to the Heat. And, of course, they beat the Oklahoma City Thunder. But I don't think he's worthy of getting his number retired. That's just me. If he was there maybe 8, 10 years, I could say it's arguable. But when you go up to the ceiling amongst the likes of Celtic lifers, Russell, Kuzi, Heinsohn, Havlicek, even Pierce. We understand Pierce bounced around there at the end. Nets, Wizards, Clippers, but 15 years as a Celtic. And second all-time leading scorer behind Havlicek. Bird. Parrish, McHale. And we know Parrish has been in the league a million years, but the bulk of it with the Celtics. Six years for Garnett, we know he's more of a Timberwolf than anything else. That's like saying Ray Allen's going to be next to get his number retired. And we know that's not going to happen. If that does, that would also be an injustice. And that's not a knock on Allen. That's not a knock on KG. If he's just going to retire numbers, just retire numbers, uh, you know, then I guess Ray Allen is going to be next. Followed by Rondo. Who knows? Jeez. That's just me, people. But anyway, I digress. Let me move on to other things. I just wanted to put that out there. Quickly with the NHL, you had a few signings here, and I believe there's this history between Montreal and Carolina where they steal each other's players for whatever the reason, but Jesper Kotkanemi, the forward, signed an offer sheet one year, $6 million. And to the surprise of the Canadians, because they thought that Kotkaniemi was going to come back. I guess whether it was a handshake deal or a wink-wink, who knows, but Carolina swoops in and gets their man for one year, including a $20 million signing bonus. I don't know what's up with that. I'm not plugged in with what's really going on with that deal and why the Canadians and the Hurricanes have this tug-of-war when it comes to players, but he signs with Carolina as they try to get themselves ready for an upcoming regular season with some more firepower. They also re-signed their own player, eight years, $62 million, Andre Shnetsnikov. Sadly, to me, he's more known for being knocked out by Alexander Ovechkin. So, I haven't seen much of this guy. Of course, I've seen him play here and there against the Islanders a few years ago, but sadly, to me, in my eyes, that's where he's more famously known for me. The Flyers... Also signed Sean Couturier. He's been a longtime flyer there. Eight years, $62 million. So he stays in Philadelphia. And the Jack Eichel saga takes another twist and turn. Remember, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you recall, where the number two pick overall in the draft back in 2015 suffered a neck injury to where he's going to need some major surgery. The team... For whatever the reason, the Sabres, they're thinking that it's just going to take rest and that their own doctors would take care of the surgery where it seems as if the representatives at the time for Eichel were saying, no, we want to get our own surgery. We want to make sure that he has a clean bill of health so he could go ahead and perform at a high level. But at the same time, we don't want him to come back on the team because there seems to be an impasse between the front office and their player. Well, guess what? Eichel said bye-bye to his former representatives and said hello to CAA, 
that's Creative Artists Agency, and will now be represented by Pat Brisson, who only looks after the likes of Sidney Crosby, John Tavares, Nathan McKinnon, just to name a few. So he goes from the ground floor to the penthouse saying goodbye to global hockey consultants Peter Fish and Peter Dottatelli. And I guess it sucks to be them. But when you go to CAA, which represents a lot of athletes in several sports, I'm sure they're going to make a power play, no pun intended, to the Sabres at this point to say, all right, if this isn't going to take place, we're going to have to get a deal in motion to get him to where he deserves the proper treatment, the proper care, etc. So the Jack Eichel saga will continue and let's see what kind of twists and turns will happen over the course of the next few weeks now that he's being represented by CAA and a guy who is a big-time power broker when it comes to other NHL players in the sport. And then lastly, just a terrible story surrounding Jimmy Hayes, the younger brother of Kevin Hayes, who's on the Flyers, I believe was also on the Rangers a few years back, played in the league with the Blackhawks, came in with the Blackhawks, also played with the Panthers, Devils, and his hometown Bruins, as he's from Dorchester. The details of his death at the moment are unknown. I, I could, What could you say? I don't know what had happened. I don't know if it was because of a medical issue. I don't know if this was because of an accident of some sort. Who knows? But man, when word came down of Jimmy Hayes, and he was more of a lunch pail guy, obviously bounced around throughout the league, did get to play in his backyard for the Bruins there, which I'm sure had to be an all-time thrill. But 31 years of age, just to go like that. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Hayes family. Just a terrible story there as the hockey mourns a loss of a recent and former NHL player. All right, let me get to a couple things before we say goodbye, and I'll do it in back-to-back fashion. Number one, we have the final major tennis tournament kicking off today. In fact, it's just underway a little while ago here at Flushing Meadow, right across from City Field where the, yes, the New York Mets play. U.S. Open, and the only storyline to get into is whether or not Novak Djokovic is going to be victorious to win the U.S. Open and in turn be the first person since 1969 to win a calendar Grand Slam. Now we know there's no Roger Federer, no Rafael Nadal, his peers over these years. So it's going to take these three gentlemen, or really two, because one are going to cancel each other out. When you look at the draw, you have Alexander... Zverev on the one side of the draw, which is on Djokovic's side. So there is a possibility and the potential of them two facing off in a semifinal. And on the other side of the bracket, you have Stefano Tsitsipas and Daniel Medvedev. You figure if by chalk, they may face each other in a semifinal. And then obviously the winner could potentially face Novak Djokovic. They're young upstarts. Remember, Sitsipas in a French Open had Novak down 0-2 before Djokovic came storming back to win the final three sets and to win the French Open. So you wonder if that's going to stick in the back of Sitsipas' mind, especially as they get deeper into this tournament and especially if they get to a final. Medvedev, as we all know, a guy who could go ahead and 
on his best day, challenged the likes of a one Novak Djokovic. Zverev was a guy who a couple of years ago, I believe, was up two sets to love in a semifinal against Djokovic and ended up losing, where he was distraught and despondent. So those are the three guys that are going to be front and center to try to dethrone this calendar Grand Slam. And even Rod Laver has said that he is ready to welcome Djokovic to the Grand Slam club. And you wonder as the matches take place and as we get day by day and into next week, and if Djokovic is still standing, will the pressure mount? Now, it's interesting. I don't know how the tennis media is, but if this was, let's say, football, you want to look back 14 years ago to the Patriots when they were undefeated in the regular season and obviously made it to the Super Bowl. We know what happened there. I'm not going to say it's going to be anything close to that, but it's the only thing that you could actually measure it against. Now, that's a team sport as compared to an individual sport. I guess the only thing you could probably compare it to, and again, it's more of an individual achievement in baseball than it would be for tennis because he's actually winning a tournament as opposed to, let's say, a guy that's going after the home run record or a guy that's going after Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak or a guy that is chasing 400, something like that, where day after day the pressure's going to mount and it's just going to maybe affect him to the point where he's going to choke or implode or not be able to attain that specific achievement where here he just has to go out and win but right as you get to a quarterfinal semifinal and of course the final now we know Djokovic is machine but he is human will this pressure be built up to at some point break him down I'm going to answer that no I think he's going to win he's going to get his calendar grand slam and at the same time although it doesn't have the prestige that it once did but I don't care whom else is the sportsman of the year. If it doesn't go to Djokovic, then there needs to be an investigation. Now, that's all there is to it. So that's what we have there on the men's side. And on the women's side, you have no Serena. She withdraws from the open due to a hamstring issue. So now you wonder whether or not Ash Barty, who won the previous Grand Slam at Wimbledon, let's see if she could go up as the number one women's leader in the world. Now, Naomi Osaka will get her shot here first time since the Australian Open. Osaka, I believe she came out with a statement prior to. I didn't get to read the statement in full. My apologies there, but I'm sure some of it had to deal with the mental health issues and her stepping away from the game and now maybe being ready to come back here in New York where the lights will shine very bright for her. And the woman's side, who knows? I mean, it's easy for me to say Osaka. Could I say... Barty will be your favorite to win the tournament. Yes, I could say that. I don't know much about the number two seed in Arnia Sabalenka. You have Angelique Kerber. You have Coco Goff. It's pretty much a toss-up with the women's game because you never know. And the weather over the course of the next few days are going to be awful. Today, a little hot and humid. Tomorrow, may have some rain. Wednesday, Thursday, and I believe into Friday, it's going to be nothing but. So how are they going to get this tournament in? And you also got to factor that in with Djokovic too. They do have the covering in, I believe, both the Louis Armstrong and Arthur Ashe stadiums. But again, they got to cram all these matches together and that could not bode well for someone like Djokovic or one of the front runners for the women's side to win this tournament. 
So that's something to keep an eye on. But as far as the women's side, it would be a great story if Osaka were to win. Now, I'm not a big fan. Not that I'm not a fan of hers, but I, that would be a very interesting story to see how deep and how far she goes and if she comes out victorious on the other end. I think that would be great for the sport. But we'll see. You know I'll keep an eye on it as we get into the final major tennis tournament of 2021. Now, quickly I'm going to get to this fight last night between Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul. I didn't follow it. I didn't watch it. I knew it was happening because Paul has made a name for himself here as he's trying to move up the ranks. To me, he's more of a novelty. This isn't a classical trained boxer as we've seen for over 100 years. Here's a guy that is now trying to cut his teeth in the fight game. And he's had some some success here early on. He's won four fights. Okay, it was a split decision against a former MMA fighter who I believe in his own rank was very good and above average when he wasn't an MMA fighter years ago. He's 39 years old. You want to throw that in the mix, but he looked like he was in great shape based on the highlights I saw. Paul looked sluggish. Not to say you have to be chiseled and physically fit, but to me, he had his arms down. He just didn't, he just didn't look the part of a fighter. And he went the full eight rounds. He did get the split decision. Woodley thought otherwise. He thought maybe he deserved it. Okay, fine. But the question I have to ask, is this a guy that I'm going to have to take seriously here? I know he had the exhibition with Floyd Mayweather. And again, that wasn't on his record. That was just a fight where it was a money-making machine. That's all there is to it. Because the young people know who Jake Paul is. And obviously the Paul brothers, Logan, because of his YouTube or whatever he does on social media. And Floyd Mayweather is who he is. He's Floyd Mayweather. So people who are going to plunk down whatever 25 45 55 $105, I don't even know how much that pay-per-view was, to watch him and Jake Paul. But Paul beats Woodley. Am I going to have to, like I said, keep an eye on this guy? I guess I'm going to have to. But based on what I saw, I was not impressed. Look gassed. Didn't really look like he was in complete shape. I don't want to say he took Woodley lightly. Who knows? But I got to keep up on it. That's all I could say. I'm doing a podcast. I got to be true to whomever out there is listening. And I don't understand. There may sound, there may be some semblance of reluctance here. But hey, let me see what this guy could do. We saw what happened with Nate Robinson. But again, please, are we going to be serious about that? So I bring that up only because, again, I'm just going to have to keep him on my radar here moving forward and see what he's going to do here. But do I expect big things out of him? If you're going to ask me that, no. Let me see him get in the ring with some real fighters. Then let's talk. And I can't even tell you who's a guy out there he can fight with. Because as we all know, the sport is pretty much on life support. And then lastly... I understand nobody paid attention to this, including myself. And for the diehard golf fan, the 405 that are out there, I know there was this BMW championship yesterday where Patrick Cantley beat Bryson DeChambeau. And the only reason why I bring that up is because of DeChambeau in a thrilling six-hole playoff to where Cantley came out on top. He was a champion. And... Yes, if this was the Masters, if this was the U.S. Open or any of the other major golf tournaments, not only would this have been an instant classic, 
But this would have probably been one of the all-time great tournaments we've ever seen. But because nobody saw it, or nobody paid attention to it, it's almost as if it, it never happened. So it goes by the wayside. It's just another event. If you saw it, great. If you missed it, oh, you missed something great. It probably was. Six all playoff. DeChambeau was in the mix. You know he has his rivalry with Kepka, which that's a disaster, but that's a whole other story. But Cantlay, I just got to give him his props. And DeChambeau, six hole playoff. And away we go. Just had to give it a plug because of how long it went. And that's something that you rarely see. You may get a hole or two type playoff. And I guess, and I get that it's a BMW thing, so it went as long as it possibly could. Who knows? Whereas if it was a regular tournament, it probably would have gone two, three holes at the most. But who knows? Maybe it would have gone six if it was a U.S. Open or Masters, whatever. But I just had to plug that in there because I knew for the DeChambeau fan, for the golf fan, that it was a classic. Again, I didn't watch a second of it, but based on what I read, it was something I had to bring up. So kudos for golf. And even though you have a Ryder Cup that will take place in a matter of weeks, maybe this was a gear up for that. I don't know. But again, it's not a major, so I'm not going to get crazy. But there you have it with the golf. All right, now let me wrap this up with my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is going to go to Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale, who not only has come back from Tommy John surgery and he's been very successful in his return, but he pitched his third immaculate inning in his career the other day against the Minnesota Twins, joining Sandy Koufax as the only two pitchers in the history of the sport to accomplish this feat. Thrice. And if you don't know what an immaculate inning is, that means you throw nine pitches, nine strikes, and it all concluded with a strikeout. Third time around, Chris Sale to go up against probably the greatest lefty of all time, especially in this era. Kudos to you. You're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to WBC middleweight champ Jermar Charlo. As he was arrested on felony robbery charges following an alleged dispute with a waitress over a bar tab. Now, he didn't pay the tab after his card was declined three times. He then accused the waitress of losing his card and then demanding that she pay for the bill. There was a little bit of a scuffle that ensued. Next thing you know, he just decided to take matters onto his own hands and therefore caused more of a scene than it should have been and therefore was arrested. Obviously a bad look. He could have handled it a lot better. Who knows? Maybe the waitress said a thing or two which triggered it, but be that as it may, should have handled it a lot better than he did. So, Jamal Charlo, my guy, you are my zero of the week. So that will do it. Episode 211, just about in the books, but before we go, just some simple housekeeping to do, as I'm sure you heard at the very top. And again, Thank you for taking the time out of your day to download, stream, to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. I definitely do not take your time, your effort, your energy for granted. I understand there are a lot of things to keep you stimulated out there, a lot of podcasts in particular, and for you to spend some time with me to listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports, again, that does not go unnoticed. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review, throw me a few stars, throw me a nice review only to promote the expansion and growth of this podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, or praise, you could do so at any of my social media accounts, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. Or if you want to send me a, an email the old-fashioned way, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send them my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you. 
And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute, it will go 100% to the production of this endeavor, whether it's the upkeep of the website, whether it's the equipment that I use, which I'm looking to upgrade a little bit here. Also, a little marketing, advertising, as this is a one-man operation, people. So it's you, just me, myself, and I, as I should say, not you, yourself, and you guys. You, yourself, and you guys contribute to this, and I greatly appreciate it. But considering this is all on the one umbrella, and I have to do quite a bit, whatever you want to put forth, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. Because whether you do or do not know, I love to talk sports. This is what I do. It's in my DNA. I've been doing this for three and a half years come September the 1st and hopefully I have 33 and a half more years to go in doing this sharing my thoughts my opinions analysis expertise with fire and passion on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond the ice the gridiron the hardwood the golf course racetrack tennis court octagon even ringside you name it from my lips to your ears from my heart to your soul from where I am to wherever you are the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>